Well, we are about to usher in the year 2016, and as we bid goodbye to 2015 and say hello to 2016, uh, firstly, I would want to just say thank you for the privilege of uh, spending this first nine months here as your pastor. It's been a joy, it's been a privilege, it's been a blessing. Connie and I are just so thankful that the Lord uh, has brought us here, and we cannot wait to see what God's going to do uh, in this next new year. And as we begin tonight, I want to preface, I've been doing these prophecy updates for about 20 years, and when I began doing these, uh, I would save news articles for an entire year. I'd begin in January and go, oh, that's kind of has some end times implications. And then the next month, something else would pop up. And a month later, maybe a couple of things. And by the time I would get to December and start looking at all the things that happened, I'd usually have 20, 30, 40 fairly significant news articles that I could apply to a scenario that you could find very easily in God's Word uh, that would point us towards the last days. Uh, We could honestly say we're getting closer. I remember talking to Pastor Chuck before he passed, and uh, as I was sharing with him kind of some of the things I was thinking about, and he, as he always did, he tried to encourage. He said, you know, when I started doing these things, Uh, It took me all year to come up with two things. So let me give you a sense of what happened. I had a folder, I had a file, and in that file, by the time I got to December, I had about 50, 60 things in there. In the last four weeks, I added another 50. And so the things that I'll share tonight, almost 100% have happened in the last four weeks. As we look at our world, we do so through the lens of Scripture. And as Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, when he got to the end of the first letter, he encouraged them. And as he encouraged them, we're going to be encouraged tonight. And then we're going to look at what Scripture has to say regarding these last days, the days that we live in. It's not meant to scare It's not meant to amaze. It's not meant to be sensationalized. It is simply to say to you that we are nearer tonight than we have ever been in the course of human history to the imminent return of the Lord for his church. That's the truth. We should be encouraged by that in two ways, two principal ways. Number one, if you're here tonight and you know you love the Lord Jesus you could be home in the twinkling of an eye. Amen? If you're here tonight and you do not know the Lord Jesus, then you are the ones we're coming after today. Because there's one thing that's going to matter when that trumpet sounds. It's whether you have received and believed or whether you're going to be left behind. All you need do is receive and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Amen? And as we dig in tonight, none of us should worry, but all of us should be very much awake. Amen? 
Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, we have come tonight, Lord, to simply gather as your family and to welcome in the new year. And Lord, as we say goodbye to the year 2015 and hello to the year 2016, we do so with great anticipation. For indeed, no man knows the day or the hour when the Son of Man comes, but we do know, we do know, we do know the times and the seasons in which the Son of Man will come. We know when the trees begin to wither. We know when the leaves are sparse and few. We can tell uh, what time and season it is. And though we may not know the precise moment, we know that it is very late in the calendar. And so God encourage us tonight as we study your word, as we review this last year from the lens of Scripture. Would you cause us to understand your perfect plans, Lord, for us as a church, that we might be busy about our Father's business in this coming year. We bless you, we praise you, ask now, Holy Spirit, come and take these notes, Lord, and speak to your people. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. If you'd turn to First Thessalonians chapter 5, and let's begin as we set the stage, and remember as you're turning there that in Daniel's Apocalypse, the Apocalypse of the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 12, it's an interesting verse. There in verse 4, it reminds us that as the end days come, as the last days come, that knowledge would increase. And I believe the knowledge spoken of there by Daniel, because the vision is going to be sealed up. The knowledge that he speaks of is biblical knowledge. Knowledge that could not have been known then. It would have been impossible because the time was not near to the Lord's return. And so Daniel sets the stage, and Jesus actually, remember, quotes from the prophet Daniel in Matthew chapter 24, describing these last days. And so as we come to this chapter, it begins this way in verse 1, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, I have no need that I should write to you. Family of God, you've been well taught. You you know what God's word says. In essence, were the Apostle Paul writing a letter to the church at Calvary Chapel South Bay, he could say the same thing. I have no need that I should write to you concerning the times and seasons. For you yourselves, verse 2 says, know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction... That will be the time of tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. When the world is crying out peace and safety, when the world says, hey, it's getting better. When the world says the war on terrorism is over, when the world says there's no threat of the communist Russia or China again, when the world says peace and safety, when the world seems to cry out that things are so much better and we're all just getting along, then sudden destruction comes upon them. Notice it says them and not us. It's an accurate translation from the original text. Them meaning someone who does not know the day or the time, does not know the times and the seasons, does not know the Lord, someone who is without the knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Now, most of you in here likely have children, been around someone who's had children. Perhaps you're married and you're here tonight. You know when the labor pains come, there's no slowing that process down. Amen? All your, you know, honey, could you just hang on? Will not work. Don't want to have my child in the turnout, so could you just wait a minute? No, when they come, they come. That moment is absolutely upon you. And those pains begin to increase in frequency. And they shall not escape. And again, very specifically, those who do not know the Lord. But you, now he goes back to including himself in with those who he's speaking to. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. Because in salvation by grace through faith, you're not going to go through it. You're all sons of the light, sons of the day. And we are not of the night, nor the darkness. In other words, we are walking in the light. We have received the light. Jesus cried out. He he stands before that giant menorah, and and he declares himself, I am the light of the world. And he who believes in me shall not walk in darkness. Amen? We're children of the light. And therefore, let us notice this, and hence the title tonight, Don't Get Caught Napping. Therefore, let us not sleep. You see, Christians can still be slumbering. You may head home via the rapture of the church, but what's going to be happening right before that event comes? Are you going to be napping? Or are you going to be wide awake? being watchful and hopeful to that end. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. And he begins to use this analogy of of people who are drunk, and they do so at night. And he says, look, for those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night, but let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love as the helmet of salvation, the hope of that salvation. And then notice verse 9, so marvelous the promise contained here. For God did not, did not, did not appoint us to the very thing that he saved us from. Family of God, by God's grace and through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you have been saved from the wrath of God. It's one of the things you've been saved from. Makes no sense whatsoever for God to pay the price with his own precious son's blood for your sin, my sin, and then put you through the very torment that he's going to use to draw people who don't know him to him. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He even tells us what the cure is, just in case you missed the point. Who died for us. That whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with it. Whether you're alive right now and in the body, the very same thing that Paul told the church at Corinth. You know, hey, I'd like to go home, but to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So he says, look, whether you're here and you're alive and you've received Christ or whether you take your last breath, you are with the Lord. Amen? That's a promise for those of us who believe. That is not a promise for everyone. Can I say this to you? That's not a promise for everyone. That is a promise for those who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
There is no such thing as universal salvation. Not everyone is going to heaven. Otherwise, Jesus is a liar because he preached that there was a real hell and that real hell will be occupied, unfortunately, by people who have rejected Jesus Christ. And so the message tonight to you, if you're here and you do not know the Lord, is tonight is the night, today is the day of salvation. For tomorrow is promised to no man. And unless you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved. There is no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. Let me make it clear. Whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. He lives in us. If you're awake, we'll live with him when we take off and head to heaven. And therefore, verse 11, comfort each other and edify. Comfort each other and edify one another just as you are also doing. This incredible passage of scripture that sets the page for us tonight allows us the intro to where I believe the Lord would have to go. And I will tell you, I have a tad bit of rapturitis tonight. That's a strange desire to kind of jump and get a head start to heaven. I've got a little of that going on. But as we've trusted Christ as Savior, we're we're members of that body. And and, and I, I must tell you that Christ both unites and divides. It's necessary. There are saints and ain'ts. There's two roads, one broad that leads to destruction and one narrow that leads unto life, righteousness. And Jesus said, few there are who go that way, and many there are that go the way of destruction. And there's a gate, and that gate is narrow. Christ divides as well. He unites everyone who believes, and he separates the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares. And so this message tonight For those of us who are here, which I believe is a vast majority, who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, is one of great comfort, and it unites us. Because we look at our world, we know that day is nearer than when we first believed. Amen? And so we, with anticipation, with a sense of the imminent return of our Lord, our Savior, our King, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the great Redeemer, one day will peek his, heads through the, his head through the cloud and, and he'll snatch us away by force. Harpazo, rapturo, ta- taken up. Are you hopeful to that end tonight? Are you hopeful to that end tonight? Because if you are, encourage the brothers and sisters, amen? You see, sometimes we talk about these things like they might happen. Would you please stop doing that? They are a foregone conclusion. They are a reality yet expressed. It's going to happen. One day, that trump is going to sound. And we're not talking about Donald. (laughs) Not sure what you call that, but that's not the one I'm waiting for. It's going to happen. The Apostle Paul draws our attention to several contrasts. They are largely between believers and unbelievers. And the first one here is between knowledge versus ignorance. Notice what he says. Three things that you can consider 
the, the knowledge versus ignorance category. And this is important looking forward to the things that we'll look at that happened in this, really this last month, but we could say this last year. You see, there are times and seasons. This phrase is found only three times in the Bible, and it always has to do with God's plans for national Israel. It always has to do with God's plans for national Israel. In light of that, what we need to know is the difference between national Israel and the church. In other words, we need to wholeheartedly reject the idea of replacement theology, which says that the church has replaced national Israel, and now there is no plan for Israel. God still has a plan for the Jewish people. That is why it's imperative that we, as God's people, are supporting Israel. Because those who bless Israel will be blessed, and those who curse Israel will be cursed. So you got two sides you can be on. I'm choosing the one that gets blessed by God. Amen? The times and the seasons. This is the way Daniel stated it uh, as he gave understanding to the king's dreams. He's saying, look, I, I understand these things. You see, history is history. We can look back on history. But we can also look forward to what God has authoritatively said will be our History that is yet future. Because from God's perspective, his prophetic word to him is history. It's already happened. Because it's eternal. Napoleon Bonaparte said that history is most well-defined as a set of lies that are agreed upon. A.T. Pearson said it a little differently. History is his story. Meaning God's. And so the times and the seasons have been set for a very, very, very long time. We've been living in the times and the seasons. And the difference is, is those times and seasons, when you look at a calendar, and the way that we can tell that it's winter, we go outside, it's cooler, amen? You know, it's at least three degrees here in Southern California. The rest of the world, you see the falling leaves. You see the change of the color of the leaves at first. You you can tell because it gets warm. You're no longer frozen when you go outside in the morning. You can tell the time and the seasons that way. And, And there's only a certain amount of time for things to grow. And so I believe the Apostle Paul, as the Holy Spirit inspires him, brings this to our understanding for that reason. He moves on to the day of the Lord, and and as he begins to speak of the day of the Lord, it is interesting to me that what we have, generally speaking, is, is a time that we look at from the perspective of Scripture as being the very last days. When we use the phrase last days, we're, we're using it in a general sense. The last days actually began when Jesus was still on this earth. And he declared that the last days began when he looked at the temple and he said to the disciples, he says, look, there's going to come a day and a time when not one stone will be left on top of one another. What he was referring to is the beginning of the last days. By the time the Roman emperor, soon to be, the Roman general at the time, Titus, came in AD 70, laid siege to Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. If you go to Jerusalem today, you will find no temple on the Temple Mount. And the reason that that happened 
was that Jesus said it would happen. It was history written in advance. Jesus left 37 years earlier. And he said, there will come a time when you will not see a temple on this temple mount. Go today, there's still no temple. We'll get there in a moment. The prophet Joel, as he was writing about this very event in Joel chapter 2, described the day of the Lord. He says, the day of the Lord is coming. It is at hand. Now he's, he's writing a, two and a half thousand years ago, and yet he describes with great specificity that these times would come and they'd be a time that's so terrible that they have never happened in the past, nor will they ever happen again. The day of the Lord. Very specific things. A specific world and what that world would look like. And so as you think on these things and we begin to look at the world around us, Jesus would also go on and say, look, it's kind of like a thief in the night. Jesus' own teaching there in Matthew 24 uses the same words. And so he's saying, look, you don't want to be caught napping. You kind of, you kind of live life with one eye open, amen? That's not a good way to get a good night's rest, but it's a good way to keep one eye on heaven. We can put these concepts together. And what it really brings us to is, look, the Lord could come at any time. These times and these seasons then relate to events that will be happening when the end of the calendar is about here. It was back here when Jesus was on this earth. And it is now very far spent, and the day is at hand. And so as these things begin to increase, remember Jesus as he spoke of these things. He said wars, rumors of wars, those things would increase in the very last day. And so there should be a sense of expectancy versus surprise. You see, the world right now looks at these things in a very strange way. The, the world looks at these things as if, well, you know, they just happen all the time. Well, they don't happen the way they're happening, and they haven't happened the way they're happening for all of the history of the church. They're happening with great frequency, massively increased frequency. And as we look at them, you, you know, God told Noah, look, the flood's going to come. He worked on the ark for 120 years, okay, before the flood came. Not exactly fast. But as you look at what's going on in the world today, things are increasing with such rapidity that we can hardly, we don't know what it's going to take to trigger the next apocalypse. We simply don't know. Jesus warned his generation that Jerusalem would be just destroyed. Jesus used the flood and the, and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah by way of example. He said, look, just as surely as these things are come, all you got to do, go, go down to the Dead Sea and go find where Sodom used to be. And when you look at those ruins, I mean what I say. I would also tell you that you can expect his coming without actually knowing the day or the time. Does God follow our calendar? No, he does not. Does God check in with humankind? Well, you know, it's a very inappropriate time for you to come back right now. No, he does not. And so 
we live with great expectancy. And so as we look at the world around us, what birth pains have we actually seen in this last year? What things have gone on? And I want to draw your attention to a single passage of Scripture. It's found in Ezekiel 38. If you want to turn there, we're going to look from verse 1. Because really the focal point of the very last days, directly, I believe, starting before the Lord comes for his church, continuing on in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, which, by the way, we're studying right now on Thursday nights, normally in the book of Revelation. As you look at that time, there's a very specific consortium of Arab nations that will be gathered together, led by Russia, that will come ultimately against Israel. And the reason that I say this is as you look at the world tonight, as you realize where we are and what's going on, it becomes very clear that the stage is set for this particular battle. And now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog, the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Then he goes on to name Some very interesting places indeed. Persia, which if you know anything about your history of the world, uh, in fact, the nation that we now call Iran was still called Persia in 1979. And so Persia, Ethiopia, Libya are with them. And I want you to notice the one common denominator amongst all of these nations especially in light of what's happened in this last year and a half as the Soviet Union, former, which is now called Russia in its entirety, but it's beginning to take back those republics which at one point in time back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was called the Soviet Socialist Republic. It's now annexed, that's what Vladimir Putin calls it, annexed Ukraine, Baltic state, annexed Crimea, Baltic state, and now has military operations ongoing on a daily basis with ships ported in Tartus, Syria, as well as air bases in the Syrian mainland. And so you can see how Russia gathering together with these troops, he goes on to say Gomer and all of its troops, the house of Tagarma, from the far north and all of its troops and many people with you. And so as he begins to unfold this prophecy, he says, prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered together with you and be a guard for them after many days. And as he says these things, in the latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel. Notice where the main crux of this will happen. As Israel is gathered back into the land, as the Valley of Dry Bones occurred, May 14, 1948, as Israel is gathered back and once again becomes a land, it becomes a people, it becomes a nation speaking its own language, speaking Hebrew, gathered together in the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. You go back and you can go to YouTube and there's a few pretty good videos. Actually, there's some 
footage that was shot actually in the First World War when the Balfour Mandate uh, was first put in place, which established this land called Palestine. And you can see there was nothing where Israel is today. It was as desolate a place as you could possibly imagine. The Jewish people came, began irrigation projects, they invented hydroponic gardening, uh, made an irrigated land out of this incredible uh, place that uh, no one would actually want, which up until that point no one even cared about. But now for some reason, you know, the world is very concerned with this little tiny nation. I lived in San Bernardino County. For those of you who don't know it, outside of Texas, San Bernardino County is the largest county here in California. It's the third largest county in our country, but it is three times larger than the whole nation of Israel. There are a little less than nine million Jews who live in Israel. There's more than nine million people in the L.A. Basin. This little tiny nation, as you look at this map and you see what's gathered around Israel, you can see that it's completely surrounded by the very countries that are listed here in Ezekiel 38. Those very peoples, and all of them are predominantly Muslim nations. They were brought in and out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. You see, in Israel, you're safer there than you are here. I can guarantee you that. They're dwelling safely in the land. But you, speaking of Gog and Magog, Russia being the head, gathered together with this consortium of Arab, primarily Muslim nations, coming against this little tiny nation that in the north, if you travel to the Golan Heights, and as you sit there, there's a couple of military installations that the IDF occupies or looking down onto the Syrian plain, you can actually see the Syrian tanks and everything that are left over from the 72 war, from the Battle at Oz. This little tiny nation that the next day after it declared its independence was seized upon by the Arab nations that surrounded it. They were defeated then, 1967. It happens again. Syria, all of its neighbors come against Israel, defeated again. 1972, same thing happens. Guess who wins? This little tiny nation. The Battle of Oz, Israel was outnumbered over 10 to 1 in armament, in tanks, in armored vehicles. They defeated the best Soviet tanks at the time. Nothing short of miraculous. God has had its hand upon the nation Israel. And yet, when you look at the UN and all that it does, more than one-third of all of the resolutions in the past 50 years have been either about or something to do with the nation Israel. A little tiny nation, one-third the size of San Bernardino County, with fewer people than reside in L.A. County. Whole country. You will ascend like a coming storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all of your troops and many peoples with you. So there will be this scenario that comes, and it appears that Russia will be in the head of it. And so what do we see in the world today? Why should we be concerned? Well, because Russia is actually at Israel's northern border tonight. 
Until this last year, that was not true. But as they have moved from Ukraine around the Black Sea, they now occupy military bases within driving range of Israel. They're stationing troops, they're stationing missiles. That rocket launcher that you see there is an S-400. That is a photograph from Syria taken by an IDF officer last week. That is a state-of-the-art anti-aircraft. Now, bear in mind that Russia says that they're there because they're trying to wipe out ISIS. Can I remind you that ISIS does not have a single warplane? So I'm not sure why they need to bring their most state-of-the-art anti-aircraft weaponry if they're not intending to do something else with them. Happened this year. You see, when we think about these things, that unbelievable scenario that is described there in Ezekiel 38 as it would unfold, what you have now is the very real possibility with a single mistake. Do you remember just four weeks ago, Turkey shot down a a Russian Su-24? That's an older jet aircraft, just so you know. That's not a newer one. That's like leftover from Vietnam era. And it almost created an international incident. What you don't know, because it hasn't been widely, widely reported, is as the Syrian war creeps closer to the border, the Russians have actually sent troops to very close to Israel's border as well. Also completely unnecessary, because there's something you should know about the Israelis. If they decide that they don't like you, there is not much that you're going to do to stop them. Because they have the United States' best armaments. Everything that we have, they have the very best of it. In fact, they, help, they co-designed our Patriot and our Aero missile batteries. They were actually designed largely by the Israelis. And so when you think of Russia, why would Russia be doing that? Unless they had plans to maybe go a little further south? It's unheard of in modern times. And yet Russia right now occupies territory within driving distance. And they call it a civil war, the United Nations Disengagement Force, the UNDOF, which was established back in 1974, sitting there on the border, uh, has just reissued new orders to continue that uh, ongoing place of conflict. Much like we occupy the 38th parallel from the Korean War, so there is an equivalent to that along the Syrian border. If you go there, you travel there, when we travel in May, you're going to go and you'll actually see the minefields with the nice little signs that you're going to be blown to bits if you go out here. It's a very dangerous place, and yet it gets more dangerous. You you see what's recently happened uh, is, unfortunately, the, the Israeli Air Force has to do what our government won't do at times, and so... Uh, Just three days ago, the Israeli Air Force launched air raids from Ramat David in Israel and destroyed three convoys, Russian convoys, of armaments that were about ready to be stockpiled on the Syrian border. It's only 80 miles from Damascus to the border of Israel. Then we have the wonderful U.S.-brokered Iranian arms deal, which if you've been following the news of late... Uh, Not only are the Iranians not keeping it, they launched a new medium-range intercontinental ballistic missile today. 
followed up by one from October. The interesting thing about this new weapon which they've designed, which is in direct violation of the agreement which they signed that our wonderful Secretary of State John Kerry helped broker, the Iranians signed that deal. When they signed that deal, one of the component parts was they would not develop ballistic missile technology capable of delivering a nuclear weapon. Oops. Guess what that new missile is capable of doing? Yes, delivering a nuclear weapon, a 1,750-kilo nuclear weapon, which would give it a yield someplace in the 40 to 50 kiloton range, more than enough to destroy most major cities in Israel. It has a range long enough to reach Israel, single flight, low altitude, and it can be guided all the way to the ground, which is the first time in Iranian history. It's a very dangerous world. And oh, by the way, that's the Persia of Ezekiel 38. Our U.S. Navy went on full alert today in the Persian Gulf because of multiple missile launches. You see, we don't hear about these things because nobody really wants to say that the world is not quite as safe as everybody pretends it is. It's not safe. And it's getting less so. As we brokered that arms deal, one of the things that uh, was also declared was that the Iranians would have to give up their fissile material. So what did they do? They packed a ship with the junk leftover spent fuel rods and called that their centrifuge fissile material. That's what was shipped to Russia. That was intercepted, by the way. And so they still have their fissile material that they were supposed to give up. Now, to give you an idea of what that means to Israel and why Israel has, since the 1967 war, had what's called the nuclear option. They do have nuclear weapons. The Samson option specifically, which was basically a first strike option, the reason that they have that is they don't have any land to give up. When you travel to Israel, one of the things that becomes very apparent is it's about a stone's throw to several other countries, to Lebanon, to Jordan, to Egypt. It's not like we think of here. Canada doesn't have any ballistic missiles that can reach Southern California. That's how far it is. In Israel, it's the equivalent of here to San Diego. Not quite the same distance. And so what's happened is, is the Iranians have developed missile technology maintained fissile material, and built two underground nuclear storage facilities, they have, in essence, all this time been hardening their capability to actually develop nuclear weapons. It's largely believed that that technology came from our good friend Kim Jong-un. We know we can trust him. I mean, what teenager with a nuclear weapon don't you trust? something that we have unfortunately dealt with here in Southern California. We did a memorial service for Aurora Godoy right here in this sanctuary, the victim of terror. Now imagine that you happen to be somebody who lives in Israel. Since September, 113 people have been wounded. 48 have been killed by knife attacks almost on a daily basis. 
as horrific as the attacks were in San Bernardino, that's a daily thing in Israel. It happens daily. It goes on constantly. If you drive down the retaining wall that uh, seals off both the West Bank and and also parts of the Palestinian territories in South Jerusalem, when you look at that wall, uh, it kind of almost looks like overkill until you realize that bombings and stabbings and shootings and knifings are a daily thing in this little tiny country. You see, we look at it like this is something very new. Israel looks at it like something that's been going on for 2,500 years. God's only going to let it go for so long. And then he's going to personally do something about it. It's called the rapture of the church, followed by the tribulation, with the purpose and point for God's people, God's people, Israel, that they might know their Messiah, that they might come to faith. This is Paul said as he was writing of his own people. He said, one day all Israel will be saved. That day and time when they truly mourn the one whom they have pierced. Zechariah was prophesying. He said, look, one day it's going to happen. That stage is being set. Something new that happened this week is really Israel and Russia allies? Are you kidding me? And yet, that is a photograph. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Vladimir Putin shaking hands. And then at the same time, Israel's saying, well, you know, that's not working for us all that well. And they turn around and destroy weapons depots just, just across the border in Syria. You may have remembered a couple of years ago that not only did Israel do this before, but they also destroyed a nuclear reactor that was under, under, underway being built. They destroyed several missile bases. They've been doing this now for four or five years. The only thing is, is now it's on their doorstep. It used to be in the center of the country. Now it's right on the the very border that Israel has with Syria. You see those things that are going on, uh, we would look at and we would go, hey, uh, we know the countries that are going to get involved in all this. You probably may have heard that Israel once again is, is talking about something that seems unthinkable. It's actually going to join with the Saudis in an attempt to defeat ISIS, ISIL. No matter what you want to call them, call them what you want. Islamic terrorists is what they are. It is Islamic terror. And that's not to say that all people who are Muslims are evil people. That's certainly not true. And I want to make that very clear. Matter of fact, when you run into people that you believe may be Muslims, you need not be afraid of them. You need to share Jesus Christ with them. They have families, and they have suffered actually underneath some of this terror themselves. But the point is, is this is not a natural ally. But the threat is so grave that now even Israel is joining together with Saudi Arabia. King Abdullah in, in Rejik is was speaking with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, and the two countries basically said, look, we have a common enemy. 
because just directly on the, across the Straits of Hormuz, you have Iran. And those ballistic missiles that they have are going to reach Saudi Arabia a whole lot quicker than they're going to reach Israel, which is nearly 1,000 miles away. Prime Minister Netanyahu said this on CNN just four weeks ago. Short video clip. We did this agreement for the survival of my country. The deal had to be reached in order that we could secure airspace with which to launch air operations over Iran. You see, Israel's problem is it has no allies between Iran and itself. And so should they decide that they need to go after those nuclear facilities, they can't do it in one shot. They would need air bases in Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, someplace much closer than where they currently are. And so as you look at these things, Tehran is saying, they're, they're still chanting death to Israel. They're still calling it the great Satan and calling us the little Satan. There's, nothing has changed. The only difference is, is that now that Persian alliance, which by the way, Iran is the world's number one state-sponsored uh, proliferator of terrorism. They're the ones that are arming Hezbollah in Lebanon and in Syria. They're the ones that are arming the terrorists in the Gaza Strip, and by the way, they are terrorists in the, in the Gaza Strip. You may have read the little article that was published in the New York Daily News, and then there was a, it actually came from the Daily Mail in Britain. And during that time, it was said that somehow they got this picture of flooding that was going on in the Gaza Strip, and it was blamed on Israel releasing water from the dams in Israel to flood out the Gaza Strip. There are no dams in southern Israel, not one. There's no dams to open. It was just simply rainwater because of poor uh, drainage control in the Gaza Strip. It's flat as a pancake. You see, there's all these things that are going on. This one little tiny nation facing all of this scrutiny from the world. And the world's going, oh, it's rotten Israel. Very often we have it bantered about in our country today. Is Islam, at its fundamental core, a religion of peace? And again, I want to very categorically state there are absolutely peaceful Muslims, those who believe in Islam all over the world. I want no one to take it any other way. I want to preface what I'm saying. But it's important for you to understand from a Christian perspective that as we look at these nations that will join together with Russia in the very last days and come against this tiny nation, that they are almost entirely Islamic. And when we say that, the person who believes in traditional Islam believes that Muhammad had revealed to him over a period of time, a little more than 20 years, what they would call the Quran series of visions that came to him during that time. And so when you think about it, it's not some isolated thing to where you can say, well, there's some, some Muslims that don't believe in the Quran and some who do. That's just simply not true. The question is, fundamentally, where do they get their theology from with regard to that? I would also remind you that there's no such thing as an Old Testament period in the Quran. 
It was written just 1,400 years ago. When you come to the New Testament in your Bible, all of the battling and everything that happened in the Old Testament is that Jewish people came into the land prior to Christ coming to the earth and there being a new covenant. All of that was wiped out at the cross. Then 600 years later, Muhammad, who is a trader in in goods, who becomes a raider of camel caravans, who then receives this vision, begins to write these things down. And as he writes them down, there are 164 verses in the Quran that directly speak to jihad. It's not an isolated principle in a book that's not that old. So when you think about it, it's not like there, there is an old dispensation that we would call that dispensation of the law that's in the Old Testament. The Jewish people lived under the law. They participated in the sacrificial system. It was how they knew how to relate to God. But when Christ came, that all changed. It became about grace. There is no such thing in Islam. And so what was truth 1,400 years ago is the same truth today. There's been no change. And so when we talk about these things, we need to be honest and open. And those who traditionally and fundamentally look at the Quran from that very conservative view make up somewhere around 20% of the entire Muslim world. To give you an idea what that represents, that's 200 to 300 million people. It's not 85 guys that live in a bunker in Oregon. It's not a small group of people cloistered in the Gaza Strip. It's hundreds of millions of people that have that theology. And so it's not hard to see because of that why Muslim Islamic nations would gather together with the leadership of Russia with the sole goal of getting to the last remaining democracy in the Middle East, which is Israel. And so when we think of those last day scenarios, they would have seemed immensely far-fetched in Jesus' time. You know why? Because there was no consortium of nations. It was all nomadic sheep herders. There were no countries then. There were specific people groups, largely nomadic, all over the Middle East. They've now been brought together under, under a single religious organization. You may have Shia and Sunni, but you only have one Quran. And that Quran is quite clear. Having said all these things, I mean, no disrespect to anyone. It will be a consortium of Muslim nations that come against Israel. It's without question, because Scripture says so. Persia, Ethiopia, Northern Africa, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Libya, Syria, Lebanon, as friendly as Jordan is today, they're still Islamic. They are very moderate. 
and actually to some degree even friends on a level with Israel. But our world is very, very, very tenuous. Where does that leave us tonight? Remember the examples? Soberness versus drunkenness. It says there in verse 6, Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith. And that's faith in Jesus Christ, folks. Because it's coupled with the helmet of the hope that we have in salvation. It's very clear. So we're not to be worried, but we are to be knowledgeable. We're not to be ignorant. And so when we look at the world, here's what should happen in our lives tonight. In Romans chapter 13, it says this, For the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. And let us walk honestly as in the day, not rioting and in drunkenness, not chambering in immorality, in other, not in wantonness and indecency, not in strife, not in envying. You see, we need to put on the armor of light. We need to get dressed up and get ready to go. Because I don't know how much time we have. If Israel decides that they're going to launch a preemptive strike against Iran's nuclear facilities, there is going to be a a very serious war that breaks out in the Middle East, one that we've never seen before. And it will involve nuclear-powered nations. Israel also gained its third nuclear submarine in the last two months. Germans have been building them for them. So there's all kinds of things that are going on. The question is, knowing that, are you trusting tonight in your blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and King? Are you preparing yourself for that day? You see, we want to be like those wise virgins who looked at the day and the time and they looked at the seasons and said, I know the master's coming, so I'm going to fill my lamp, I'm going to trim my wick. You see, a lot of Christians just walk around, ah, you know. We've been talking about this end time stuff for a long time, and we have. The question is, we used to talk about it two, three, four, five things in a single year that you could kind of go, well, that looks like that's lining up. Now we're talking about 50 of them in one month. Those things Jesus said would increase as the day draws near. Prophet Daniel said the same thing. We cannot be asleep. We need to be very, very, very much awake. Jesus himself used that same analogy. And basically he was saying, look, you don't want to be caught napping. Dozing off, sleeping at the wheel. You see, that salvation that we have versus the judgment that we could have should put us in that place of understanding, look, I have a responsibility to be ready. If Jesus comes tonight, are you ready? If Jesus should call the church home tonight, are you ready? If the trumpet should sound, have you done everything possible to be ready? 
Because we should do everything possible to be ready. And that means preaching Christ like you have never preached him before. That means living godly in Christ Jesus like you have never lived before. That means being wise as a serpent. It means being gentle as a dove. It means reaching out to people with whom you disagree. It means taking the time to look at that person who is lost and realizing they're lost. They need Christ. I don't know how much time we have. But I know it's really late in the calendar. Joel 3 says it this way in verse 1, For behold, in those days and at that time will bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, gather them together and bring them into the valley of Jehoshaphat. And there I will enter into judgment with them on account of my people and my heritage is round. Whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. You see, it becomes very clear what God's doing. He's not taken all of this lightly that the world has scoffed at Israel. The world has tortured Israel. That the world has, in essence, said, look, we, we, we want this nation to not exist anymore. The Lord has taken that extremely seriously. We should take it seriously. And so for you who are here tonight, and we sit in the comfort. We have that faith. We have that hope. We have that love. Amen? We do. We're secure. Let's take that security that we have in Christ in 2016 and let's share that with anyone who will listen. Let's be busy about our Father's business as we look forward to this new year. We must live intentional lives. Gospelly intentional lives. That means the things that we do and the things that we say need to have purpose and meaning. The time is short. The hour is at hand. And whether the Lord calls his church home tonight, that would be a great way to end this year, amen? Amen. He's ready. If he should wait this next year, maybe it's a Christmas gift for 2016. The point is we have intentional lives to live with the purpose of the gospel being made known. The Great Commission isn't sit on your hands and wait until he comes. It's go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples of all men. We need to be busy about that calling that God's placed on our lives. He did not redeem us with wood, hay, and stubble, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And I challenge you, because the moment you decide to live intentional lives, intentionally gospel-oriented lives, the enemy's going to come against you. Because that's the message he doesn't want out. He couldn't care less about your political views, but he definitely cares about whether you're a gospelly oriented intentional Christ-liver. If you live for Christ, to die is gain. Remember Sunday? We need to live that way. There's a world outside these doors that needs Jesus. Jesus.